Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills. I'm your host, Mike Donahue, and feeling pretty excited about this one today. This is one of our few sort of relevant contemporary episodes. There's a small TV show called Secession that just wrapped up. Brilliant writing, brilliant TV show. And the ending wasn't, nobody hated the ending, I don't think, but it was certainly controversial and it was certainly worthy of discussion. And so, especially as it relates, I think, to women in the workforce and women in positions of power. So today I am joined by two powerful women. They're certainly in the workforce, at least. Uh, we have Megna, Megna and Lee. Say hi, Megs. Hey. And Shauna Kerr. Hey. How are you guys doing today? Working. Excellent, as <laughs> always. Women in excellence. Women of excellence. Okay. And <laughs> Shauna's going to be at a, a bit of a disadvantage uh, for, for the first part of this discussion, so we'll try and keep it brief. But in, if you're a Secession fan and you haven't seen the final episode, just hang up now or turn it off or whatever you do. Drive into a wall. Because we are spoiler galore, and we're judgmentally spoilerish, <laughs> so it's a, it's a double whammy here. So, Magna, at the end of the show, Shiv is driving off with Tom. Did she win? Did she lose? Did she make the right decision? What's your take? Did you really want to start with that? Okay, let's go yes, there. Y- y- we have to. <laughs> Okay, so this whole 90-minute episode, the finale, I am so aware now of how hard it is to escape getting things spoiled because I was traveling, I was out of the country, and I was slowly trying to catch up to the last three episodes I hadn't seen, and I could not be on Facebook. I could not go on Twitter. Thanks to you, now I'm getting slowly addicted to Blue Sky. I couldn't be there, and finally I watched it. And I promise you, for 90 minutes, I was yelling at the TV. So first of all, I'm yelling at the TV. And maybe you saw all those twists and turns coming. I did not. No. no. I did not. I was so exhilarated at the crowning of the king scene with that, you know, the batter and the Vitamix on top of Kendall's head. And I was like, yeah, you know, there's a part of me like, these are such horrible people, but, you know, the kids win. And it's great. They can come together. And it all went downhill from there. The last scene broke my heart. It absolutely, I cried. And I think I cried for me because what it told me is that my despondence at the world is not misplaced. The women, however privileged they may be, cannot win. They're loser obnoxious, shitty husbands are always going to win in some way or the other. And if anything, she's gone from being somebody's daughter to somebody's wife, and she's never going to be that person. So you saw that limp hand that she placed on his hand. That's womanhood currently. That's the state of women in this country today. Limp hands on top of open male hands that say, hey, you want a life? You want laws that work for you? 
you want succession in quotes, you will, you can be the CEO's wife, perhaps, but you can't even be CEO of a company that your father founded. So there you go. Broke my heart. Hardest thing to watch, but brilliant. Beyond, beyond, beyond brilliant. I just absolutely loved it. I don't have to watch the show anymore. I just have to slip, I have to slip my throat and be done. Yeah. Hey, I don't know where you stand with it, Mike. What do you think? Well, I, I think with a lot of things, we view anything through our own prism and perspective, right? So it, it obviously, it means a lot of different. I tend to be a little bit more analytical about things. Like, did she come out? net positive did she come out net negative etc and i think but i think to your point because there's this bigger thing of like shiva was fucked from the beginning because she's a woman and she has you know these two well three brothers that are all different on the scale o aggressiveness are are fairly different but you know i think she shit the bed i really think she shit the bed i think there was a moment there where she could have demanded the world from Kendall. She could have gotten anything she wanted. She could have gotten CEO for herself. He's chairman of the board. She, you know, she could have asked for anything and he would have said yes to get her vote and to retain ownership. And she shit the bed. And so now, right, she drives, as she drives out with Tom, she has zero stock in the company. Her husband has zero stock in the company. Maybe he'll get some as part of a CEO compensation package, but it's minimal. She has no voice whatsoever in the direction. And if they decide to fire Tom in a month, they're going to fire Tom in a month. And then they're gonna, she's going to be out on the street with just a whole lot of money, right? And maybe in the world of politics, maybe that, that does have something and she's not even fully disassociated from her father and the company. She's like tied now. She, it's not a clean break. She's like kind of tied in. And it's just this, it's going to be a gross feeling walking in to visit Tom. And there's a big Gojo logo everywhere. I just don't, I, 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 think, I think she just really screwed up. And I think her, her core issue, part of it was not her fault because I think the guys were pretty shitty in, in kind of excluding her from a lot of the core decisions earlier on in the core conversations. But her flip-floppiness in terms of who she supported, I don't think helped that perspective. And I think that would have happened whether it was a guy or a girl or or whatever. I don't I think it was they had to they had to be kind of focused. They had to be on board. And she had to be on board with with Kendall telling Matson to f off. So, but bottom line, she walks away with nothing but billions of dollars, and that's not exactly losing, but and a loveless and a loveless marriage, right? Well, and and I think that while I said what I said before, we have to break down the character and the development of the character and the person who she is. While I feel heartbroken for her because she almost had it and then she didn't have it and then she again almost had it and then the father promised it to her like two seasons ago and then she didn't have it. At the end of the show, there is ironically this innate sense of fairness, right? 
because she was the least qualified person for the job. As much as we hated Kendall and we hated Roman, they were attached to the business. They had done time in the business. And as far as Kendall goes, I don't agree with you, Mike. He would never have let her have it because his entire being, his entire self is caught up in that position to the point that it turns out in the last, I don't know, was it 15 minutes of the show that the dad had promised it to him when he was seven years old. I mean, it's that kind of stuff, right? So she never would be qualified to have it. She's never run anything in her life. Perhaps she's been on political campaigns and, you know, she's somewhat of a kingmaker uh, because of her status as, uh, you know, a Roy daughter and having access to all these billions and having the ATN Murdoch X engine that, you know, will propel all these candidates and, uh, you know, twist elections in their favor by calling Wisconsin before the world is ready to do it. So I think that it's just how invested the writing got us in, got me invested in her winning it in the end. But really, the truth is, she would be the worst person for the job. And I think Madsen knew that too. And they kind of tricked us into thinking that, you know, that caricature and what looked like was like New York Magazine or the New Yorker or something. You remember where she's this yeah. puppet master? Yeah. I think that's what that's what killed it for him. And he kept saying, I think they make him say it two or three times that he thought it was funny and he's not affected by it. But come on. I mean, a guy like that who can just go out and buy the biggest, you know, one of the biggest media conglomerate empires, you know, write a check and walk into it and has to now suffer the, uh, you know, the tragedy that will be having an American CEO on top of it. And he's just playing, right? But that kind of thing, being as dehumanizing as, as it was for him, I think that that's what turned him. And I think that also showed him that how can she be the puppet master when really she's not qualified to do that? In terms of like what position, she could have been CEO of the movie studio. She could have been CEO of ATN. She could have been, I mean, but she, she wanted could... it all, right? She wanted to be at the head of the pyramid, well. at the top of the pyramid. And yeah, that's but, what ego uh, will do to you. He did that to her. You know, Madsen did that to her by, you know, kind of playing along. She suggested that she be that American CEO. Remember when they were at that, that, I think they were at the memorial. And she said, Shivroy for CEO. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he's doing some computations in his head because he's an exceptionally smart guy. Who He's also diabolical. Because he just wants it at any cost. And he may even, who knows, he may even be buying it to shut it all down. You never know. Right? We'll never know. So, I don't know. And Tom, really, he's a joke. He's like the least charismatic, I think least competent person. Although they kept telling us through that last episode, everybody kept talking about how good he is at his job. But... I never saw him do a good job in however many seasons it had. Did it have like four seasons? He was always the bumbling buffoon. He was a terrible leader. He, I mean, talk about a flip-flopper. I mean, he takes the cake. So for Madsen to pick him, maybe he saw himself in that position of puppet master and said, hey, finally, I need someone who I can control. Because 
he's talking to the guy about fucking his wife over dinner, right? So this guy really has no respect for this person. So in any real terms, will he give him the reins? I don't think so. So it's all, it was all like, so I think it was much more power and, you know, the diabolical nature of Madsen than any of these Roys. In the end, they had no power. And the poor Kendall, he walks out and now he's like, he's probably going to throw himself into the East River where he was walking. I mean, (laughs) what even happened to him, right? He's gone. He's done. He never wanted the money. He wanted the crown. So that's over for him. Roman, who knows? Who I R- think Roman should get an Emmy. He, he should get an Emmy for this last season performance. That guy just outdid himself. R- Roman will be dead in a year from a drug overdose. <laughs> really, Roman, not Kendall. Yeah, not no, not Kendall. I don't. I don't think Kendall will. If Kendall offs himself, you know, he'll he'll. He'll just die of alcoholism early, but, uh, <laughs> but I think the the thing with Tom was that we got to see how goofy and inept and sort of how weak spined he is. But if you're Matson or your other people, and you're looking at them from the outside, between Tom and Shiv and Kendall and Roman. Tom doesn't look that bad. And and Tom's smartest thing that he ever did was responding to Matson in that dinner about how I'm up all night, I worry about the details, I don't care about direction, you tell me, you know, I'm just here to execute kind of... And that's the exact opposite of what Shiv would have been. Shiv would have had an opinion about everything, right? Tom's real shining moment was being exactly what Matson was looking for and i think there's a there is some degree of i don't want to say sophistication but i think tom learned some stuff over his time with the family i think but maybe i'm giving tom too much credit but he i mean again he's he has no he has no leverage anymore he's positionless i think you never had it you know because if you think back to even how the, uh, Logan Roy, Logan Roy. So if you even look at you're okay, so you're absolutely right about one thing that he is definitely the CEO that a Madsen can mold, right? Because he said uh, direct manipulate, vision, manipulate. manipulate. Okay, yeah. we can say manipulate. And I think Logan Roy did the same thing because I mean, we can have another conversation about, you know, the nature of the CEO in the world of founders that we live in, right? So when founders cease to be CEOs and they hire CEOs, what is the nature of that person that they're looking for? But at the end of the day, the very reason why Logan Roy kept Tom around, who must be somewhat okay at what he does, but he was also the guy attached to his daughter. And, you know, he really didn't like him very much. So if you go back in the series and you see how Logan Roy used to even treat Tom, I mean, nobody respected that guy, right? And I think Logan Roy did more than you might suspect. Respect? Mm. I'm talking again, about respect. Again, you and have I'm talking to, about you... respect in a corporate sense, in the sense that as a founder, let's say as an owner, whether it's Logan Roy or it's Matson. 
however much you may want to control the process, there has to be a part of you that says, okay, this guy's at least got to look good on paper as CEO, right? Well, again, we're doing comparative with the kids. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I don't think bit. the kids were ever real contenders, so I don't no. think they were never going to be CEO. None of them, and I think that was Logan Roy's biggest disappointment. And he was always going to sell it, and he was going to walk off of, off of this planet with his latest girlfriend. I forget what, uh, what that right. woman's name <laughs> is. And I don't think he was ever going to give anything to any of his kids. But trigger warning, like if you're overweight, the best way to look good is to hang out with really fat people. And I'm, that's, that's what Tom did, right? If you, and I'm, I'm going to cheat now because I'm, I've been reading a bunch of stuff on this. Tom is the one who, who remember the kid in the first episode who, if he hit a home run, he would have gotten a hundred thousand dollars. Remember who tagged him out? I don't remember. Was it Tom? It was Tom. Yeah. There was a scene early on on the yacht or something where Tom sits down when Logan's eating lunch and just takes his food from him and just eats it. <laughs> I don't remember right? this. <laughs> and then Tom, Tom was the one who betrayed Chiv yeah. and the team. Yeah, in Italy. To Logan. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. and w- the one word that Logan was always talking about, killer, killer. Mm-hmm. You got to be a killer. And again, from this weak group of four or five people, Tom was the only one who was really serious, I think, about having any sort of killer component to them. Yeah, but Mike, he was also the most surprised that he was picked as CEO. He thought he was going to get his ass fired. I mean, this is how preposterous this whole premise is. And I I just couldn't even believe that they... The show ended with the announcement having been made that it was really going to be Tom. I thought Madsen was just yanking his chain like everybody played with Tom and his feelings throughout the show. Why not Madsen? Well, so now we can digress into actual sort of workforce <laughs> stuff. And poor Shauna, thank you for putting up with this, Shauna. We're, we're oh, nerding man. out here. But you think, like, you think that whole, top, you know, that whole sort of situation is preposterous, etc. I would push back in as much as I think... A lot of crazy, impetuous stuff happens at the very highest levels that we are just not, uh, not a kin, not, not, we're not, we're just not privy to it. Oh, sure. And I think sure, sure, sure. Like we always have this feeling like if you're the CEO, like this was for me coming up as a kid, like when I, when I first entered the workforce. I was just like, oh my gosh, this person has a job and they're being paid to do something. They must be really, really good at it. Like, what am I, how am I going to compete with these people? That's a baseline expectation, I think, in anything that you at least know how to do your job and do it well. Is it not anymore? So you think all of your coworkers, every time you worked with them, they all knew their jobs and knew how to do it well? I think at a baseline, yes. I think like Tom... Uh, let's talk about coworkers for a second. If we're not talking about CEOs, I think that there is a baseline requirement. Let's just say ability to fulfill tasks, right? So let's talk about an architectural practice. We worked at one together. As a baseline, most people would have a certain level of qualifications. They would have a certain level of skills. And then after a certain point, everything really would diverge. You know, you'd have people with master's degrees and, you know, highly technical things. You would have 
you know, senior partners who didn't even have licenses in architecture. You would have someone on the board of directors and a senior vice president who went to a non-accredited architecture school. I mean, there, there was always stuff like that that happened also. But there was always a baseline understanding of the business. I think Tom definitely had that because if Logan was the one who hired him, I don't even know what their origin story is. Maybe I didn't pay attention, but it I don't know how they got together, whether Tom got hired first and met Shiv on the job or they were dating and he got hired because that kind of changes the dynamic also, right? I feel that he was, perhaps they, she got him the job somehow. And that's why he played this really subservient role to her. I don't know. Do you know what that what the answer to that is? Did they meet on the job or did she get him the job and they were already together? I, I don't know, but I'm trying to shift out of secession land just for, for no other sake other than Shauna's. No, 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 I'm because good. Because I think but... in general, I think in general, I, I'm really surprised you would say that because regardless of what sort of paperwork is on your desk, there are people that are making a lot of money that are objectively bad at their jobs. And we in America don't have a corporate culture that really is survival of the fittest, especially in the bigger firms. There's a lot of dead wood that exists in a lot of firms. And you know, that- it exists. It exists at the senior levels, Mike. And I don't agree that people coast by even at let's say our past employer when we worked there. Perhaps let's hear what the- Shauna. Let's hear what <laughs> Shauna has to say. No. So I I actually have to say, I I don't think, I think there is survival of the fittest. It's just that what do you consider fit, right? If you're talking about competency at jobs, I don't know that I would agree with that. Um, Unfortunately, I think the world as it is now is much more about cult of personality a lot of the times. So people can be very, very convincing that they are capable of certain things that they are not really capable of. And I've seen that over and over again. So I don't know about this baseline thing. I think it would, I think that was the ideal that is the, uh, that that's the market we all believe in, but I don't think it truly is. I've unfortunately seen too much of it the other way. So are you agreeing with me? I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, and I haven't seen enough of the other side because I think that maybe I've seen, like, you know, it would be quite silly of me to say that, oh, I've only worked with very high-performing teams. And I think to a certain extent that's true because there is no room for mediocrity if everyone is going at 120 miles an hour. And Mike, you were in that room that I was pulled into one time, just anecdotally, you and another person I won't name, where you being one of my peer group were out of concern for me, advising me that I need to go a little bit slower because people are not gonna like me enough because I drive people too hard. And the people I'm working with do the same. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, but, but that I think that was said to you because that was a recognition of the culture of the firm and what the firm valued. And the firm valued go along, get along more than it did. Yeah, but, ag- but that's what you thought. The, the team that, again, so let's talk about, you know, like a corporate well, I mean, do you still, suite setup. Are, did you get promoted? Are you still there? No, I did get promoted and I left on my own terms. I wasn't, in fact, they kept me around when they really didn't have to. And I was very appreciative of it. 
and I stayed around and I helped them build the group back up. I was the only person who was sitting around in that studio for a good part of the summer after I had been on furlough for eight weeks. So, but you never made leadership. You never got into any real position of any power there. Perhaps. But then I was also one of the youngest people ever to be put into leadership from a very young group that the company never had. So what I'm saying is, now we're going into the weeds. So let's back up a little bit. The point is that I think that the as amazing as the show has been, they have left a lot of plot holes for us to kind of you know, be frustrated by if we care enough. But there, if you just look at, and Shana, you don't have to watch the show to follow along on this, but relationship dynamics, when you are two people who work together. So my husband and I, we basically peripheral to each other quite independently, but do in a very broad sense work under the same umbrella. And it is a fucking hard place to navigate, Mike. I mean, you got to put your ego aside. You got to forget that you have to still have dinner together. You have to forget that you have a kid. And for the sake of your marriage, you have to get along and forget about the shit. And it it is something that's, I mean, I, I take very personally because it is really, really hard. And this is like, you know, we're this is not an ATN. It's not a Murdoch, Trump, whatever type of empire. But when two people are married and there's a natural uh, sense of competition that creeps into it, right? Because you could see even in those two, they were always competing with each other somehow. You know, whether it was uh, Tom competing for Logan's attention or wanting to be the most liked guy in the room or Shiv competing with her own husband so that her father likes her more, or at least likes her more than her brother's. That in itself, I think in this particular season, they played really well into that destroyed relationship as we open this season when we find out that she's also pregnant with this man's child who she really doesn't like a whole lot to start. And now it ends with her being pregnant, virtually, I mean, it's horrible because she's probably billionaire a few times over, virtually destitute because she now no longer has any shot of having any kind of standing in the company that her family founded. So, you know, it's like the old saying, you know, pregnant and barefoot. And now where is she going to go? Is she going to leave Tom now? I don't think so. So there is all this issue of competence, whether, you know, Tom was good at his job or not, or everybody just humored him because he was Shiv's boyfriend and then her husband. But at the end of the day, we are left feeling bad for her, yes? No. No? She shit the bed. How did she shit the bed? She had her she had a she chance. She never had it. She never she had, had a chance. It in, she had a chance to leverage it into something and she's left with nothing. Yeah, but she never had a real shot. Look at how even her own brothers treated her. Her own brothers excluded her, basically gave her nothing, convinced her somehow that they should be co-CEO and she should just stand aside and watch. I mean, this woman knew at her core that she was not qualified for that job. Otherwise, she would have fought harder for it. I mean, what did it mean to you when the two brothers somehow just decided that they were going to run the thing and she was just going to be and just have a vote? And that's really all she was left with. So I don't know if she shit the bed. She just wasn't qualified for this massacre of an industry and this ruthless family. 
And she's pretty ruthless herself. We know this. So I don't feel sorry for her, like, oh, what's going to happen to poor uh, Shiv Roy? Just sorry for her in that she should have just stayed away from it all and gone and made presidents instead. So let's shift it back then to this this concept of, of mediocrity and, and competency. So again, in my head, if we have a bell curve of employee performances, right, and we just do it straight along the median, that bell curve exists in every firm across every industry. But the vast majority of those people, the 40% or whatever, the 50%, are, are in that mediocre band, if not below that mediocre band. And mediocrity exists, I guess maybe for me, it was just realizing that mediocrity exists in much greater numbers than I ever expected it to in the corporate world. And I think that's because we don't, our, our capitalistic culture kind of understands that and we're not, you know, we, we don't do things purely on pure meritocracies in corporate environments. None of the firms that I've ever touched or, or even remotely looked, been a part of work like sports teams, right? Where you're constantly evaluated and the minute you drop off, the minute we can get someone who does it better and cheaper, you're out the door. We don't live in that kind of world. And I think architecture firms, design firms especially, don't live in that kind of world. Well, because not everything is that, you know, we're not talking math. We're not talking numbers. There are opinions and there's human beings involved. I mean, it's, it's messier than that. Even in sports, I don't think it's quite that simple. Personality plays a huge role, you know? And then if people are hiring people that don't really let's say there's an architect who's hiring, you know, an IT person. Do they really know IT? Do they, do they ha- even have the ability to truly evaluate how good that person is at that job specifically? I think that's the nail on the head, Shana, because I was struggling with following along on completely with, uh, you know, Mike's assessment, because again, we only have one common case study between the three of us. I don't want to go in and keep bashing it, but I'm saying just for the purposes of a case study, it sounds terrible, but it wasn't until I got involved in hiring for, let's just say, my group, that I ever inherited, let's say, competent people. So you are right, Mike, you are right, but I, in my experience, People don't keep incompetent people around unless the incompetent people are the decision makers. So yes, I have faced that a lot. Unfortunately, every time I face that, the incompetence has been in a person who is um, perhaps my manager or someone who didn't hire me but is now in charge of my destiny or someone who doesn't do what I do. So going back to what Shana, you're saying, that if an architect is hiring an IT guy and the lens that they're evaluating their performance by is skewed, right? Because how could you? How, it's like Mike going out and hiring an architect. I mean, now, Mike, you probably can because you've been so entrenched with architects for, I would say, most of your career. But I think at the end of the day, when it comes to an ATN, I'm assuming that it is such a niche type of an organization and a trade 
that you only ever, I would imagine, move from a CNN to an NBC to a CNBC to a, a Newsmax, or if you're really in the dredges, what is that one America news or something like that? But you're always coming from somewhere else. It's kind of like Orange County architecture firms because nobody wants to leave Orange County, so everybody just keeps sliding and moving around the firms. But they present ATN as a Fox News-esque organization that is very powerful and perhaps very good. They have very good ratings. They are into cruises and theme parks and all that good stuff. So they want us to believe that it's a real organization, a mature organization. So I would imagine that if Tom is playing with Logan Roy and you know the founder of the company, then he must have had some skills and he did something right. But does that make him CEO material? I don't know. So maybe we talk about the real world, which, you know, Shanna lives with us as well. She's, you know, unlike succession world, which she's not been immersed in. But in the real world, look at the CEOs of all the companies that we know, we follow, where the founders are no longer CEO, right? So you look at the founders, you look at the personalities of the founders, and then you look at who they bring in as the next generation or the ship steer, the captain, the stabilizing influence, or whatever other things you want to add to that. Could those people be any different from the people who founded those companies and ran them as CEOs? It's like suddenly you go from founder, startup, go change the world mode to let's keep people paid and we know what we do. Let's just keep doing it right. And maybe we pick up a few new things along the way. Right? I mean, Name three companies that are no longer run by the founders. Just three, three random companies. I mean, we know the three. We're looking at equipment made by three of those companies, like right now, whatever devices we're on. And uh, so what's changed in those companies, right? It's a question. So what are the companies? Let's talk about Google. Let's talk about Twitter. Let's talk about Apple. Let's talk about Microsoft. But but the role the the role and the expectation and the skill set that is required to found a company and to scale the company up and then to manage a massive company and let's just be really honest provide shareholder value because there's no other job that any CEO in any publicly traded company has anything to do other than provide shareholder value period stop end of story. That's the American thing. So they're two different. And and this little guy, when they start out, they don't care about shareholder value. They care about, quote unquote, changing the world, right? But when you hit, you know, your billion dollar valuation, you, you need a different perspective. You just, that's the construct that capitalism has created with quarterly reports and everything else that goes along with capitalism. And I think, I mean, we're mixing a lot of subjects here, but I guess what I was trying to drive at was that there's a presumption that the people at the very top and people that make tens of millions of dollars a year in executive compensation, that they're really hot shit, that they are on the ball. If you're making $5 million a year at your job, poof, you, you have got it going on. And that's just not true. That's just, that's not the case. 
I think that's what secession was sort of trying to indicate a little bit is that you have these people who are billionaires, right? And they're in positions of power and they're, they're goofballs. I love you all, but you are not serious people, right? I guess, I guess, I guess that's the thing that I was trying to, trying to communicate is that the mediocrity or, or the reality is, is that perception of what people should be based on their value or their position isn't always commensurate with their actual, you know, capabilities. I think the thing though, you have to consider is when you say they have their shit together and they know what they're doing, what is it that you're thinking they know what they're doing? Is it, is it the scaling up or is it that they're great at presenting an idea and getting people to follow them? You know, like, there are different roles that a CEO or a founder of a small company does that's different than a big company that's bigger than a, that's different, that changes, right? So the issue is that the definition of that. Well, again, it's people, if you ran into Roman on the street, you would be like, oh my, how is this guy the head of a major motion picture studio? Oh, I wouldn't actually. He was the most <laughs> accurately portrayed because I've seen a few okay. studio executives <laughs> in my yeah. life. Okay, they, they are were, obnoxious. But okay. they weren't they weren't like him. They don't they don't sit down with existing studio heads and fire them on a whim. They absolutely do, Mike. That's what I'm saying. They absolutely do. So hold on. Let's talk about Tom for one more second, okay? So in the real world scenario, in my opinion, the non-founder next generation CEOs that are running all these successful companies today are more qualified, yes, than the founders. They are better at running things than the founders, yes. They are perhaps even better trained, business school educated in the literal sense of the really weird term, people, people, you know, like you say how someone's a people person. And then when you go to business school, a lot of the uh, conversation at business schools is about how do you connect people to each other? How do you set, how do you sell vision? How do you elaborate a vision? How do you get people to follow along? And how, I mean, that, all the good things about leadership, right? So if you look at Sundar Pichai, or you look at a Satya Nadella, or name another one, you know, like a Tim Cook, they are perhaps, you know, from a perception point of view, most likely in reality, nicer people, than the founders, because the founders were young, they were, you know, perhaps underdeveloped in social skills, perhaps they were underdeveloped in anything other than this burning desire to create this tool or this technology or this place or this object. And they didn't focus on things like being people people or being a people person, or how do you get people to follow along on vision? Like Steve Jobs was notorious for burning people out, right? And totally forcing people almost to self-harm, like making, breaking their spirit down to the point that just, uh, that they don't feel good about themselves, right? You, you are the only, you're like God-like. You wear your black turtleneck and your black pants and you walk around the stage and everybody just sits and claps their hands and says, goo goo gaga, look at my human God in front of me. So if you look at that characterization and perhaps you agree, perhaps you don't, 
why would Madsen pick Tom? I, I, it, it's driving me crazy. Other, Madsen, than, other Madsen, than the fact that he is the lowest hanging fruit who can be completely manipulated. Yeah, he checks the boxes. He's he's going to run the company and not let it drive off into the cliff or the river, as it were. Looking <laughs> looking at you, Kendall. Uh, he's going to drive the company, and anytime Matson wants him to do something, Tom's going to do it. But that's not the real world, because we know that these sure, the so, legacy uh, CEOs are... Not those people. For, I mean, for your top three valuation, like like the people that you all talked about are like in the top three valued companies in the history of the planet. There yeah. are thousands and thousands and thousands of publicly traded American firms that have huge revenues where that's just that's just not really the case. We're very we're hyper focused on I think the founder story because of Logan and all that. Yes, of but, course, because you have to relate it back to something that has some kind of similarity. It's not a 200-year-old business. He came on a ship with his brother from Scotland, what, 40 years ago, 50 years ago and started a company which is now valued at x billion trillion dollars. So you have to find a parallel and you have to go to the founders. You can't go to CNN you can't even think, I mean, how long has Ted Turner been out of everybody's memories, right? How many CEOs have they had? So you can't look at media companies like that. If anything, sure, you can look at the Murdochs, but Rupert Murdoch is still around. He's not dead. So who knows what's going to happen to that company? I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the, if you look at the lowest levels of an organization and whatever sort of generic competency percentages exist at the lower level, it's more than likely that it also exists at the higher levels. I, the I agree with that. The competency, that. The, the percentage O competency doesn't, uh, you would think normally in a, in a meritocracy, right, of any kind, that, that as you went up the chain, people would become more and more competent. There'd be, there'd be better and better and better people. But that's just, in corporate America, that's really just not the case it's not it's not in design firms either we know this okay so i'm winning i'm winning this i'm winning this argument this is you're, this is you're winning the real world argument i might be winning the succession discussion. <laughs> well since since shauna has the breaking vote but but okay so and i guess let's talk about if if we've beaten that horse off the cliff <laughs> Just a little. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about women. Do you think? And this is this is the, it's not really secession related, but I have to use it. If Madsen picked up an article of Roman or Kendall being the puppet master over him, do you think he would have had the same reaction? Absolutely or? not. Okay, so it had to do with Shiv <laughs> being a woman. Absolutely, and it had to be with a woman born with a silver platinum spoon in her mouth he's a self-made guy he's swedish uh, you know he va- he's like a salt of the earth guy and she's someone who's had everything handed to her in a platter on but a so platter. did kendall so, so did kendall so did roman yeah but again at least they worked in the business i'm telling you the way it always came across to me was we could hate these guys they were total shitheads they were obnoxious people Okay, but let me rephrase my spoke, question. People listen because they were in the business. They knew the business. She knew about politics and she was peripheral to one presidential candidate's campaign. Let me let me let me rephrase the question. <laughs> if Shiv was a boy, exact same character, but a boy, 
or man, would Manson have had the same reaction to the the picture? Similar. Similar, but not same. Okay, because, that's what I'm trying to... What is the delta about Shiv because being here's, a, here's the a thing. woman? I think perhaps because you are not a woman, you didn't pick up on some of the subtle cues all along the show that just showed Shiv as having a, the ability to walk into a room as someone only because she was Logan Roy's daughter. He would dehumanize her by calling her Pinky during a business meeting. I mean, that man had no respect for his own daughter, right? He had no respect for his sons either. But the way that the character was written, there's a reason why she didn't go into the business. I believe that, the, you know, the title sequence where they show how all the kids are in these vintage, like vintage film and the titles are playing. I think that that gives you a real glimpse into that family because there was an oddity about even having that one girl in this set of four other males of different ages because she always felt like she was the odd one out. And she was she was the youngest, right? Or was Roman the youngest? Roman was the youngest, I think, yeah. Roman was the youngest. And I think that there was some reason that came from that place, why she didn't go into the business. And she went and lived a life of, I'm just going to say, Logan Roy thought that she lived a life of pleasure. Because if you go and work on a presidential campaign, you work when you want to, you have a husband on one side, you have a boyfriend on one side, you have an open marriage with your husband. These are pleasures of the wealthy, right? Because the rest of us are not afforded these uh, acceptances in the corporate world. We get judged all the time. And everybody knew all these things about her and nobody respected her and nobody expected her to ever be a contender. Even the two powerful women, uh, Logan Roy's COO, she was COO, right? Jerry, the other uh, person, her and Carolina, the was she the PR person, marketing person, something Le- like legal. that? Legal. Carolina. She legal. legal. Yeah, so these two women were very powerful women, but I think even they didn't respect Chevroy. No. But but really? to, to, she was to, insignificant. <laughs> I know this is gonna be a, a challenge, but to broaden it into the generic realm again, so Shauna can participate just a <laughs> little more. I'm good. <laughs> again, it's 2023, right? Yeah. The glass ceiling a hundred years ago, maybe a little bit more, the glass ceiling was so thick women couldn't even vote. And Sixty years ago, you know, women were had a, a very small list of predefined professions that they were able to go into. In I guess as late as the seventies, right? Anything well, post World War Two to make up for the shortage of in manufacturing, then sure. Well, te- temporarily, but I mean, y- you didn't see a lot of women welders in nineteen seventy five, right? It just it's. I don't think you saw any till Flashdance came out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep going. I know my my <laughs> brain just rebooted on that one. <laughs> Getting visions of leg warmers and bottles, <laughs> buckets of water. Oh, that was a nice vision, wasn't it? So it's it's <laughs> it, it's trending, and now we have women CEOs of very large firms. We have 
women doing impressive things, right? There's no, there's no real field currently that's off quote unquote off limits or, and maybe you guys can tell me one because I, I might not know, but that's really socially unacceptable uh, or socially unacceptable for women to participate in out of your quote unquote mainstream professions. And, and in fact, I think just the opposite. I think there's this sort of bending over backwards to try and, you know, get higher levels of female participation in certain things. I, I so I guess the, the gu- I, I would disagree with that. You do. You would. Ninety nine percent of the time, I'm in a room of men. Uh, right. Same here. Ninety nine percent of the time, barely ever is there ever another woman in the room. Ever. Hundred okay. percent. So what are the graduate? So I guess back to you. You guys again work in architecture and design. What are the graduation breakdowns of? women versus men in architecture. I think it's 50-50 at this point for the last many years. But women in decision-making rooms in the design world, Mike, are still very rare. I'm telling you, it was rare for me to not just not have any women on the client side, but there were hardly any women, even from a team representative of us on the consultant side. At that same level, I think Shana and I were both working in different groups at the same time. And we were both finding ourselves in the Middle East, in Asia, even in the U.S. In, t- in meetings, we would go for four or five day trips to, you know, a U.S. client or a client in China. And they, we would see no women for days. Yep. Absolutely. You literally would see no women. And I it's think the same are, now. It's the same I think now. there are women at the bottom levels who are doing sort of the work, maybe. Doing the work, support, yeah. But at the higher levels, there are no women. It's so rare. But Mike, it has changed a lot. Even if we go back to, again, our, our uh, common case study, I hear and see of more women in leadership at this point. But it, it, it still doesn't make a dent. It still doesn't make a dent. I'll give you an example. I was at an event. I've been attending an event uh, pre-COVID for a couple of years. It was the Women's AIA chapter for Los Angeles. And finally, in 2019, they got to have their own WAIA three-day event in downtown LA at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. And it was fantastic. And after one of the panels, I actually got up and I had nothing to say about the panel itself, but I just had to share how interesting it was to not see a bunch of old, stodgy, you know, you leadership you guys, leadership, leadership guys who didn't do the work, who got all the glory for design packages submitted and Shana you know that this also has happened to both of us because we were in like architecture adjacent groups at, uh, you know, our common case study that there were people flying all over the world with these packages that were produced by the little shop that we were running. And these guys had never even seen it till they basically got off a plane and downloaded it at the lounge or, you know, something like that. So I was at this event and then And once I mentioned this, other people started to chime in about how important it was to have that and how important it was to not just have that as a standalone event, but 
you know, kind of roll it into the main AIA event every every year? Why have a separate thing, but have a significant piece of women in leadership in architecture, in design as part of the main AIA convention annually? I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but it completely showed that this much smaller group of people were perhaps the people who were making all these projects and all these buildings and all these interiors and all this master planning and all this architecture happen, and nobody ever saw them. And we were lucky because, Shana, you were going out and presenting design vision to important clients. I was doing the same, and I would not have been able to do it if the people that saw something in me and encouraged me to do it were not ready to stand in some room somewhere mythically and say, no, I want her to go out and do it instead of this other guy who perhaps... But, you know, there's, even though there have been a lot of changes, and I think that's wonderful that the changes have happened, there's still so much bias, like so much bias. I can't even, like, so recently, I, I, I have a very large project that we've been working on for quite some time. It's under construction. So I'm on the job site dealing with the general contractor, dealing with the electricians and, you know, all of that and the client. And 99% 99% of the time, as I said, I'm the only woman in the room. No big deal. I'm used to that. No big deal. Now, we're in the construction phase, so where it's very technical. It gets into how something is built and what it's... It's not just the pretty stuff, right? And uh, recently, I took one of my employees with me to the job site to see it because they hadn't... They've been working on it, but hadn't gotten to see the job. He happens to be male, Right. We go to the job site. They have been dealing with me for months, months. I've been answering all their questions, all of this stuff. Within five minutes, there was a question that came up about some molding. They asked the question and then turned their face and looked at him. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. I I know you're not. I've been there, sister. In in America. (laughs) In America. America. Only in America, America. America. Right? In liberal <laughs> Not only California. in America, let's be honest. Only in America. You know, like, and, the, the, and these, are, these are not, like, super old white dudes either. I mean, we're talking, <laughs> like... So it, I'm just going to throw something out there. Do you, th- do you think any part of that is biological? In men? Really? Somehow my vagina makes it that I don't know how to do molding? <laughs> No, but maybe your vagina is why men can't make eye contact with you sometimes. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not trying to excuse the behavior. I'm trying to understand I think you're it. trying to explain it, and you cannot explain it because there's no rational explanation for it. Okay? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if there's no rational there explanation. There is none. That, that, uh, that, that they would look, when they were asking me about a color, they looked at me. As soon as they were talking about oh, something technical, and a piece of wood, they w- and, and looked at him. Well, I think culturally we're we're and and uh, we're we're gonna this is gonna spin off like a meteor, but Ooh, let's do it. Culturally, <laughs> we men are predisposed to sort of technical nerdy stuff, really? and women are predisposed to emotional stuff. A load of fucking bullshit. It's really, it's really not. So much. We have been, we have been, we we have been trying to. We need to get you out of Riverside, man. We have been trying to force feed STEM down 
women's students' throats for 25 years now. What are you talking about? And the numbers about? aren't changing. <laughs> countrywide. No, so, the adoption rate is nowhere near what we would like it to be. Because it's not about force feeding. It's, it's about, about opportunities that are given. It's and about culture. how people are handpicked for success in this country. It's also about like what your worth, is, how you're told your worth is. You know, people choose. It's very, this is very confusing to me, especially as it, at the developmental stages. Right. I figure if a, if a woman likes uh, if a girl likes to playing with trucks and she wants to go into construction, she's going into construction. But they don't go into construction because you're not encouraged to. And then if you do, you get the weird look or you get the you're not worthy kind of like. But we have been not- on this kick about you can you, girls, you can do anything you want to do. We have we've spent billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to level the developmental playing field so that there in a school it doesn't level it in culture and that's the issue it's culture culture is what hasn't changed yet but what's that stopping like how does that impact the influx because are you are you guys really are you guys really trying to tell me culture we live in this world are you are you guys affected by how our parents see us how are you are you really trying to tell me that with men and women, with the XX versus XY, that there's no biological, even at the smallest level, biological predisposition to anything that men and women across the globe tend to fall into. So I am not saying you're saying that it's all one hundred percent artificially no, created. I do not agree with that. I I agree with you. There are some natural biological predispositions. However, there are biological dispositions between races. There are biological predispositions for age groups. You know that doesn't mean that we like slot people in and 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 make it that they can't go out of those bubbles. Right. We we don't, but again, I guess I guess that was that was the first point that I was trying to to argue. So the point that, I'm trying to make is that despite the fact that I had been dealing with all of these people, this entire team, contractors and clients and and asking uh, answering questions on site in the moment questions about technical things for months as soon as i bring a a person who has a penis instead of a vagina that we know and they ask a question they ask him but but no not just a question a question about the properties of wood or something yes a technical question okay right so 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 there's multiple there's only a few potential answers to why that happened right number one they're inherently misogynist right I don't think there. I, I think there's I, only one reason, and that's the only reason. What's the only so reason? I don't. I don't know. So misogyny is that they hate women. I don't think that they hate women, right? I, I, I don't believe that. What I, and these people I've worked with, and I like them a lot. They're very good people, but they have a bias. I'm not saying that they're misogynistic, but there is a bias that women are not as good at this stuff. Immediately in their heads, somehow they're thinking that. In the back office this whole time, I've been playing with the pretty colors and I've had my guy doing all the technical stuff. Right. 
but that's not true. So, Shana, how did you how did you handle that? Did you say something about it? No, because did you whip no out point. your dick? It's, it, I mean, <laughs> yeah, my, my dick one. <laughs> the one that Tom she carries for me. Yeah, exactly. like <laughs> Beat them over the head with it. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. So I just all like the person I have working with me. I've worked with B for a long time. We get along really well. They were very respectful. They were like, "Oh, Shadow, you you know this stuff better than I do. What is it that we were thinking?" So he, you know, he pivoted and he like directed it back towards me. And I didn't bring it up because there's no point. It's just going to make people feel uncomfortable. I need them to feel comfortable and trust me. And part of that is I'm going to let it fly for the moment, right? Mike, you know, it's it's actually, I'm thinking back to a couple of things. So, you know, we're talking about technical versus uh, non-technical slash design skills, right? But I'll, I'll share something with you guys. That the couple of things that were said to me. First day. I move groups. You know, I was in one group at, uh, you know, our case study practice, and then I moved to another group. The person who I'm supposed to be working with, who I've never met before, I just showed up. First thing they asked me is, are you married? And I was like, yeah. Do you have a kid? Uh, Yeah. Where do you live? Um, L.A.? You drive 50 miles to be here, you're unsustainable. I'm not going to waste time with you. I literally heard that at the Monday morning team introduction setting, and nobody batted an eyelid. And I was horrified because I I came from a pedigree and a DNA where I was never made to feel less than because I was a woman. And I was a very young designer at that time with a lot to learn, but I had never been faced with that. But you I'll don't think you a new a new you don't think a new guy would have gotten those same questions? No, absolutely really? not. Absolutely not. Hey, welcome, not. welcome to the team. Are you you know talking? Are you married? Do you have a kid? Where do you live? No, what? and that you're really? unsustainable. And well, well, and that, that, I, but hold that, on, hold on, hold on. Okay. That and that was one instance. Other instances are so another coworker who I'm not gonna. I'm so tempted to name, and I know he's gonna listen to this, and he'll be like, "Oh, you're talking about me." We had some kind of a disagreement at the studio and, you know, it was about his wife who had chosen to, or they had decided as a family that she was going to not work till the kids were of a certain age. And because of that, they were going to have one income and then they were not going to be able to afford childcare anyway. So he had a lot of like, you know, things about with me that stemmed from how is it that I can come to work and his wife can't work, and uh, we were of the same age, and we're similarly qualified. And in the middle of the studio, during a meeting, he said, I don't know, just went on this rant about how at least his wife and he are not paying other people to bring up their children. <laughs> I mean, well, just, and, yeah, but, here, but, but here's the thing. It was so, so okay to say that. And there was so much safety you, for him you, to say you that. Think, do, you, do you think the other people in that room thought it was okay for him to say that? Yeah, they were laughing. Because again, as usual, I was the only woman in the room. You know this. For years and years and years, there were no women in this group that I was working in. But that was also, was that also 20 years ago-ish? Um, sort of. Close? Yeah. But I mean, I still work in that space. I have a team of my own now. And do you, do you I, think... 
I'm telling you, I have, have a hard time hiring, even contracting women to, and this goes to your point, perhaps, to uh, uh, hire women to work with me on urban design and planning and this, in the city of LA. Because LA is not a center of urban design and planning excellence, perhaps. Maybe Orange County is more because of all the planned developments in the area. And I look for, I work with consultants. I don't, I have a core team, but I don't hire full-time people. My core team does most of the work. And then I hire out, I consult out to for specific disciplines. And it's like a chicken and egg thing that maybe women haven't gone in this part of California into urban design and planning because there aren't that many jobs in it here still, relatively speaking. But I have no women design consultants available to me. So again, I'm still the only woman walking into the room when I'm going in to present something to a client. And the team members that end up going with me as representative of this team that I'm leading are all men because I can't find women to hire. And perhaps, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of safety in working for larger firms that give you, you know, larger benefit packages. They perhaps give you, there's a perception that they give you more flexibility, perhaps before COVID, that was true. And, uh, you know, you would have a nine to five position if you're at a bigger firm. I don't know what the reasons are, but it's like a self-perpetuating thing that how do women become leaders in this space if they don't have that opportunity from a very young age and they're not groomed for it? I think men are groomed for leadership, perhaps by their families, by their mentors, by their by the educators who their lives are entrusted to, to be leaders. I think women generally and I don't know if you agree, Shana, are perhaps not expected to anymore, but end up playing support roles on teams, even at design practices when they go in. I think culture plays a huge role in this. And that's what I was talking about earlier is that there's an expectation. What are the expectations? Just like we have expectations for our children or, or our spouses, the expectation for women are different. The, the, the criteria by which we are judged are different. Whether I have a high-powered job or I'm doing really well and I'm, you know, whatever the case may be. So somebody comes into my home and they see a mess. I'm judged for that, right? They don't judge my husband. No, but, and again, but that, don't, all don't. I'm saying is why is it that they don't judge him? He lives here just as much as I do. There is a difference. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but... Your Why does it judged. keep saying that, Shanna, knowing full well how it's going to go? Well, because Why does you, it keep saying that? You, you two are emotional. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> trigger, okay. trigger, 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 trigger. We can also well, say that you are like, non-emotional, and that I, is problematic. I would argue, Shanna, that, that, and I don't think it's the same, and I don't think it's fair, but your husband is judged on different things, different yes, criteria. Yes, absolutely. Why am I not judged on the same things that he is? Even though we both work, we both are childless, we both have our own companies. Because men and women are inherently different. 
So wait, are you saying then that men and women aren't different? Don't go there. I'm not Just saying don't... that we're the same, but that doesn't... I, a guy can do laundry just as well as a woman can. I mean, that's fucking bullshit. Yeah, sure. So why would what I be judged on laundry, but somebody else is not? Because, of, because our cultural expectations are, are, are formed by the overall. No, there's a whole lot of data inputs that go into cultural expectations. And our cultural expectations are also formed by historical like norms that we are very, very against changing a lot of the time. I I would argue that we're not not happy about the changes that have happened in visibility of different cultures and different races. They don't like change. I would say that we're not necessarily against it but we are talking about the relative newness of women in any profession is is relative we're still in the fucking life it's not new to me my you know what i think think it's very important it's very important to kind of compartmentalize culture as it is as well because there is a lived social culture of a place and there is an experiential culture of a professional employer of a company but i think in the in the general sense when shana says culture shana correct me if i'm wrong or i say culture it's basically a catch-all word for this huge perception of gender roles right and they are much different you are right mike in many ways they're much different than they have been even within our lifetimes, Shana. So we have also seen it, right? We are the same generation that uh, perhaps now you've had your own company for the last, I'm going to say, what, 15 years, give or take. I've had mine for, you know, eight, nine years this year. So perhaps nine years ago was the time or 15 years ago was the time when given the pedigree and the skill set that you were coming from, that you could actually go out and do it. Historically, to have an interior design practice, it was generally a bunch of guys who would have a bunch of, as they would call, in quotes, gals working on the projects, wearing you know little skirts and blouses and uh, little pumps and showing up for work and presenting designs and you know stand in the corner, look pretty. But that has changed, it, or it's evolving. Let's say it's evolving. I can I can tell you that even for the time and Shana, you weren't there. I don't think for a long time, uh, Mike. I don't think you were there for most of it as well. But I can tell you that when our case study practice had a woman as an MD, the day she took over, things started to change, and they started to change because. When you see someone in a role that you've never seen a person in, so when you are, uh, you know, a, a minority woman 
someone who's devoted their life to that firm. And you see as a young woman designer, now suddenly you see that it's not a 60-year-old man and, you know, 20, 60-year-old men before that, and a woman has come into power, whether it's a manner of style or a manner of how she carries herself, how good she was with people, and, you know, how she kind of took this real shit show and she made it start working again, right? And it made a difference. So there's something to be said about perhaps it was her personality, but her being a woman had a lot to do with it because it just started to look different because we started hiring differently, Mike. I mean, the people, uh, the resumes we started getting for hiring in all the departments started looking different because it made a difference that this firm, this old, very, very good, very well-respected firm had made a big move. So yes, it might seem performative to some people, but it made a difference. Now, I'm pretty sure that she if she was to confide in us or join this podcast, she would tell us that she has been in those rooms as the only woman MD of a uh, design practice in some things she's been in. And there might have been challenges there as well. But until somebody actively starts to influence culture in a different way, in a different direction, it can't happen. So it's it's meaningless because it is so ingrained, this whole gender role, uh, it, it's set in stone. It, it is totally set in stone and it, it, people have to make the big moves. And yes, you can be a cynic, Mike, and say, oh, it's performative that now you have to have a, a woman of I'm not, color I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. a leader or something or, oh, no. she's not really as good and she doesn't know technical stuff because no, women I don't would, join I would, STEM. I, I blah, would blah, actually blah. argue the opposite. I would say that women in top leadership positions and firms have to be twice as good. That's, well, they that's have my to, perception. They definitely have to work twice as hard. Yeah. To have their voice heard. And so, I so, had to do that. So I'm going to close the loop on that conversation you and I had perhaps 15 years ago, that the reason why you heard my voice so much was that otherwise, I would never be able to have my presence felt. And, you know, when I was younger, and I was always this loud, outgoing, you know, terror of a person, like, you know, and my grandfather his one of his friends used to work with Philips, you know, the big engineering sound company. And he brought me a poster for my room that said, you don't have to shout to be heard. Okay. Imagine giving that to a 12 year old girl. It's the most dehumanizing thing you can do. And everybody thought it was really funny. And my brothers actually put it up in the room. They ha ha ha. See, you don't have to shout to be heard. But women have to shout to be heard. Till today, we have to do that. And because we have to shout to be heard, they say, hey, you know, when you shout, you can't smile. Smile more. Shout less. <laughs> it's, this is the kind of shit. And I, I, I don't expect you to understand it, Mike, but I think given where we are in the world and all the information and the statistics and the conversations that are happening, I think that it's time you accepted that it's not about competence most of the time. It's about suppression. It's about not having opportunities. And the reason why there are not more women in STEM is not because women are not interested in STEM. It's because the gender roles are defined at birth. And Barbies are created. And pink T-shirts are all over Target. And, uh, you know, GI Joes are not in the girls' section. So it's really high time that... I, I'm pretty sure that sociologists would say you're inaccurate. 
I'm pretty sure they would no. say, you are living in the past and move out of Riverside. <laughs> I, I think that you I'm going to get bashed for bashing on Riverside. Yeah. But that's okay. I, I, and I, I don't, don't live in Riverside. you understand how pervasive all of the the expectations and the weight of all of those gender norms have that they're all on one, on, on, but but theoretically those those expectations those gender norms are equally for men as they are for women but they're but we don't judge the world uh, we're, we're talking about women in business right if we were talking about men's housekeeping skills then it would be a different story. No, I. No one's disagreeing that women don't have it shitty in the business world. Like nobody. But no that's what we're talking disputing. about. That's what we're talking. That's the baseline competence thing. Men and no, women the are compet- really the competency. The competency discussion was complete. That was cross gender. But that I'm saying I'm I'm cross pollinating. I'm bringing it into this. That baseline competency between men and women other than acquired and enhanced skills someone might have, something highly specialized that they do in design that somebody else doesn't, I don't think that they're gender-specific at all. So coming back to Shana's point, there is still a perception that if it's construction and engineering, a man would somehow know more when the two people standing there might have had an equal amount of education and number of years of experience in that field. There is a perception. And... I think people, I'm an annihilist, right? So uh, you got to call this shit out, man. You got to say that, hey, I'm sorry, but I'm here representing a practice in which we (laughs) X, Y, and Z or something, because that wasn't done to my benefit when I was not the figurehead of the team or the company. And I intentionally do that now. I try to do it at least, you know, and when I meet, when I meet, clients, uh, you know, who are women on client teams, I intentionally celebrate that. And I put it out there that I think that this is fabulous. I don't ignore it. And the worst thing that's happened to women is, unfortunately, a lot of women who found success in life haven't carried enough other women with them. I think that's also happened. But I think a lot of that comes from I'm not excusing that behavior. I'm just saying it comes from survival as well, because there was so little responsibility, leadership positions going around that perhaps women had to kind of only focus on how they can nudge ahead and poke through till they hit that glass ceiling, keep poking through. And Shana, you hit yours, I hit mine, and we left on our own terms, right? So not everybody is able to do that. I'm very empathetic to that. Not every woman, and I'm going to speak for women only, Mike, so don't turn around and say, but men feel like that too. I'm sure they do, but I don't care. But not all women have that comfort or safety or security of pers- security of personality, security of support at their employer to be able to say something that could rattle someone's cage. It, I mean, I, I, I have faced women like that. And then I've also faced women who uh, perhaps I said something abrasive in a meeting who felt more comfortable taking me into a room, you know, separately and saying, hey, you know what, I I think that wasn't cool. And I think that kind of undermined my position. So can we have an agreement that we're not going to do that to each other? And I absolutely respected that. I think think the the core problem, the core issue, and I I think we can apply this sort of anecdotally to a whole bunch of things. 
is that when we cite this example, whether it's the example of the woman not getting the job or the example of, you know, that the Chana mentioned, or whatever those examples are, understanding what percentage of that situation was caused by the male-female dynamic as opposed to any other of the million factors. And I'll just, I'll, let's just, I'll just equate it with race a little bit, right? So a black guy goes into a store, he's treated shittily, right? How, and it, it's almost the unknowable, right? It's like, was he treated shittily because he was black? Or was he treated shittily because the employees of the store are just shitty employees? Right. And I think I think that is a byproduct of the phase that you guys are in right now. So if we look back over time in America, right, the the power, the only power base was in white male Protestants. That was it. Right. If you were a Catholic, you were screwed. Right. Or Jewish, you were screwed. And what happens is over a long curve, a, a long curve, it starts to change. And now people really don't care if you're Catholic or not. There's still some goobs who care whether or not you're Jewish or not, but that minority is receding. And I think your your guys is, I think, a potential source of, of some of your frustration that you're feeling is that you are in the beginnings of that curve towards where it should be, but you're not. You, so you can see it, as MLK would say, you can see the promised land, but you know you're not there. And you're still having, and maybe you aren't where everybody was 60 years ago, but you certainly aren't where you want to be. I, I think, I think, I, I want to add something to that, Mike. I don't think that, I'm not going to speak for Shana. I had to create that promised land for me to survive in this industry and to have a woman led practice. There, there was no promised land that I was trying to achieve or something I was trying to replicate because it didn't exist and it wasn't going to exist. And I was fortunate to have a lot of support and get some really good projects and go head to head with all the big names in the business to win business. And I don't think I won any of that business because I'm a woman. So I'm very clear on that. I don't think I won uh, a lot of that business because I'm a minority or I'm an immigrant or, you know, I went to a certain school. I think that it was on merit. And you can be cynical about that because perhaps you compete in a different way in what you compete for. But at the end of the day, and I am going to speak for Shana for a moment, we both came from a very similar professional pedigree firm background. And we've gone on to do pretty interesting things. And I don't think that for me, it would have been possible if I didn't have that pedigree of that particular firm, because it is that important and it is that respected. So I, I really do. I'm very appreciative of it. But at the end of the day, you got to stand for your work has to stand for itself. And you have to be given a shot based on what you bring to the table as the work, as your portfolio. You're not going to get million dollar conceptual master planning jobs in the Middle East because you're a woman who dresses up and shows up and makes a presentation. These are very sophisticated clients. They're not going to give you a project just because you're a woman. They're not that involved in your status in society. The work has to stand on its own. So we can have this intellectual debate about gender roles and things like that, but 
yes, we are a long way away from parity, let's say. I, I don't like using the word equality. Parity in the workplace, parity in professional standing. But I think we have also come a long way. So I am, I'm not saying that it's that bleak, that it's the same as it would have been for me, you know, 30 years ago if I was, you know, 15 years older and I was clawing through a corporate design firm. I, I had it. I had the right support at the right time, perhaps at the right time in history. But it still has a long way to go. And we have to, Mike, we all, all three of us on this, you know, platform right now have to agree that there's a way to go forward and it's going to happen and it has to happen and it can't be based on biology because that's bullshit it's not biology (laughs) biology has nothing to do with anything in the professional world i would grossly disagree with that but that's a subject for another time shauna last word um you're wrong we're right. First off, that's that's two words. But as a woman, you're not going to be good at math. Oh, hey, hey. Whoa. You did it, man. No lunch for you. All right. Well, thank you. I, and again, I, I get this feeling like I'm I'm being kicked around uh, like I'm a cynic and blah, blah, blah. But it's 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 not true. Uh, I think you are doing your job very well. You're rabble rousing just enough to get the conversation going and see the female emotions rising to the surface. But the because good thing is so emotional. Yeah, because <laughs> but the good thing is nobody cried, and we're going to stop this before someone does. Most likely me. <laughs> All right. Then let's do that. Magna, Shana, thank you both very much for your time. I super appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Mike. This was so fun. And I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface of all with all the other shit that's happened this week. But you know. We 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 definitely can at some time. Yeah. Love you guys. All right. Bye guys. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.